All right, you'll have to forgive the Barry White lower tone. Maybe it'll be better. I had zero voice on Wednesday. So uh, it's better now, but it's still not 100% perfect. But we're going to work with it because there is no other option, is there? All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray just before we kick this off here. God, would you just be with us today as we um, dive into your word? God, would you please teach us? We just humble yourself. We humble ourselves just at the foot of your word. And um, we just ask that it would provide us just the, the instruction, the life-giving power that we need um, just to walk this earth in joy um, and with wisdom. So please teach us and be with me today as I um, give these words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Fantastic. So if you haven't been walking with us, we're in a series about the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be continuing that series today, Matthew 5. So if you guys want to open up your Bibles to Matthew 5. And today is going to just be... um, it's good. We're going to read from verses 13 to 20 is what we're going to do. And really today is just going to be, we're just going to go through this piece by piece. And we're just going to kind of dissect it and see what God has for us. Verse 13, it says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Salt. Salt. Let's start here in verse 13. And just as a reminder, it says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt was valued for its many different types of uses. Throughout the Bible, we see many of these uses. It's used for flavoring things. It's used for preserving things. It's used for healing, even. uh, For destroying Right after a city would be destroyed, they would often salt the earth so nothing could ever grow again. It would be preserved in its destruction. It's also served in the temple 
uh, as a liturgical tool. Uh, we see this where they would sprinkle their grain offerings before offering them, or even the sin offering of a goat, they would sprinkle it with salt. And it was used in covenant making as well. It symbolized permanence. It symbolized purity. It was preserving. So when Jesus calls us salt, he calls us to preserve and season the world. And this is quite a humble position, if I might say so. Because salt doesn't take something that's rotten and make it fresh, does it? That's what God does. That's what God does with us. He's not calling us to that. He's calling us to preserve something. To stop rot. The theologian uh, Charles Spurgeon said, In a Christian's character, there is a preserving force to keep the rest of society from utter corruption. If Christians were not scattered among men, the race would putrefy. But if they are Christians only in name, and the real power is gone, that's the Holy Spirit in us, nothing can save them, and they are of no use whatsoever to those among whom they mingle. You know, I was... I was reading this, and I, and I was thinking about salt, and I was thinking about moments in my own life. And um, I have a great friend. Um, he does not know Jesus. And we've been close since high school. And I got invited away. Um, I, he asked me to be a groomsman in his wedding. And so naturally, I got invited to the bachelor party. And before we had, you know gone away for the weekend at all, I got added to this chat. And some of the things that were being brought up, um, maybe I'll keep the salt theme here, they were rather unsavory. <laughs> and um, there came a moment where we were discussing plans, um, and there were just things being brought up, and I just had to have a bit of a salt moment. I kind of just said, hey, guys, this is something I'm not going to be doing. I, I won't be coming if that's something that we're going to be doing, which was hard. This is a great friend of mine, a really good friend. We have a long history. But I, I love God more. And uh, you know what? They ended up not doing that. <laughs> And we ended up going away for a cottage weekend, and we had a great time. And I just look back on that, and I go, if I was not there, if the Spirit of God had not invaded in that moment through someone who is a Christ follower, that would have been a very putrefying moment, a very rotten moment that could have gone on in all those men's lives. And yet it was seasoned with salt by the grace of God. Glory be to him. If we who declare Yahweh as Lord are not acting as that preserving force in our friendships, our marriages, our dating relationships, our households, careers, community, then this passage becomes a warning 
Because there is an end part to this passage in in 13, right? If we are Christians only in name, Jesus says that we'll be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If we're not doing the job of preserving, then the only option left, if we're not preserving, then we must be a part of the rot. And our hypocrisy in calling ourselves Christians, it will turn us into a footpath for the world just to stomp all over. And that's the warning Jesus gives. Holy Spirit, you are our guide and our strength. Please dwell in us and keep us from losing our saltiness. Preserve us until we finally see you face to face, Lord God, please. Let's continue here in 14 and 15. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Now, if you recall, this was Israel's job from the get-go. They were to be a light for the nations. Light is bright. It stands out amongst the darkness. It's very clearly different. And light also indicates that there is a light source. There is not a dark source, only a lack of a light source. And a light source serves as a guide in the darkness in two ways, both for those navigating it like a flashlight would, and also as a beacon for those who are being drawn to the light like a lighthouse. So what is the light that he is talking about right here in in verses 14 and 15? Well, we can kind of go all over the Bible to kind of find. So if we go to Ephesians 5, 8, uh, you don't have to turn there. Stay in Matthew. (laughs) I'll read this for you. In Ephesians 5, 8, it says, For one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. There's our source right there. Walk as children of light. In Philippians 2.15, it says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights or stars in the world. And this directly alludes to a passage in Daniel 12. And in that passage, it's the wise, it's the, it's the wise who shine like stars. And how do they do it? They do it by reflecting God's character. That's that's what they're doing in Daniel. So God is the source. That's the light. We're shining it. It has to do with character. It has to do with wisdom. In John 8 to 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the light also represents life. So it's God's light. It represents the truth, the wisdom, and life itself. And it is related to our behavior and walking in step with God. And what is its purpose? So why do we walk in light here? Well, this question is answered if we go right to verse 16, and that's what we're going to do. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others. So it is to shine before others. Our character and wisdom and truth and life is to shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God's light, the truth, the wisdom, the life that causes us to walk wisely is not just for our benefit. It can't just be for our benefit. It's meant to draw, draw others. You know, I pulled another story here from this bachelor party. <laughs> on, the, uh, on the drive up, um, I had about a two-hour car ride with this really good friend of mine. Um, who was getting married. And um, if you don't know, um, one of our sons has epilepsy, and he was diagnosed earlier this year. And uh, I was just talking to him about that. And, you know, I was just kind of sharing my heart a little bit, just surrounding it. And uh, you know, he was being a good friend. He was giving, you know, he was consoling me in a way, and uh, and he was also offering just, you know, a lot of encouraging words, which was great. But man, did I ever miss being a light in that moment. And it just kills me. I did not redirect how we were handling Rory's condition, how we were handling our marriage. You know, he's giving all this encouragement and saying, hey, you're handling this so well, you're doing this and that. And I have to say, I fell short. I fell so short. I forgot to redirect this praise to the God who has given me the wisdom to walk in these difficult circumstances. And that just kills me. We can't miss those moments and opportunities, friends, if we call ourselves Christ followers. The wisdom in which we walk, the wisdom that the spirit inside of us gives us, we must, we must point people to Jesus. We can't save them. Our wisdom can't save them. God can. Both of these salt and light metaphors, they stand as reference points for how we should conduct our lives relative to the world around us. As salt, we should be morally preserving a world that would decay without God. And light, we should be demonstrating and sharing the light of the gospel with a world that would be dark and devoid of light without God. So, Father, please fill us with courage the light that shines through us and into the darkness will make us excellent targets for the slings and arrows of the enemy. So God, I just pray that we have endurance and perseverance for the sake of the lost who see your light as a guiding beacon and are saved because of it. All right, let's continue here. We're going to continue in verses 17 and 18, and we're going to do a bit of a shift here. So Jesus moves on in his sermon to start talking about 
um, the law and the prophets here. So let's read. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not a comma, not a stroke, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now I must admit, whenever I see the word law, in the Bible, I get confused. I don't know sometimes what it is talking about. Is it talking about, you know, the Ten Commandments? Is it talking about the 600 plus laws that the Jewish people had to follow? Is it talking about the Old Testament itself? Um, and so I just wanted to actually take a bit of time and explain what's being referred to here exactly. Because I think it's going to help us moving forward. So what, when Jesus says the law and the prophets, what is the law and the prophets? Well, in short, when this phrase was being used, it's referring to the, what we know as the Old Testament itself. The law being the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the Torah, and the prophets being actually everything else. Um. Israel considered the writers of scripture to all be essentially prophets because a prophet is one who speaks the very words of God. And so this was a common phrase just to refer to what we know as the Old Testament. So how did Jesus fulfill the prophets? What does he mean here? Well, this one might be a bit of an easy one. There are so many prophecies, so many prophecies about Jesus that are fulfilled by his very life, his death, and his resurrection. And not only do we have so much prophecy that gets fulfilled in his lifetime, but there is a mosaic of messianic pictures and profiles that you can find all throughout the Old Testament. Things like um, son of David, son of man, um, the seed uh, uh, of the woman. Um, Oh gosh, there, there's just a tongue. The priest of the order of Melchizedek. There's a bunch of these old um, school profiles that you get there that the New Testament writers tap into that Jesus also fulfills. And then sometimes it's referenced so clearly in, in Matthew and throughout the Gospels where you see a story about Jesus. He does something and literally it just slaps you in the face and goes, he did this so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. And it's just like, there you go, fulfilled. <laughs> so that's how he was fulfilling the law and the prophets. But what is the law and how did Jesus fulfill that? Well, what the law, so if we're going law and prophets, right, what the law isn't exactly, it wouldn't be totally correct to say that it's just simply all those 600 commandments strewn out in the Old Testament or the ones that you find in like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. How do we know this? Well, remember the law, right, which is the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 
It represents the whole Old Testament. Then what about the scripture before the commandments were even given to Israel? How did anyone follow the law before Israel was a nation if it was only about these 600 commandments or the 10 commandments? How did anyone get judged before that? What was the standard that God was using before that? So there must be something else. And so what it is to a greater degree, what the law is to a greater degree, is actually much simpler. It's actually much simpler. But oh, so much of a higher calling. And this goes all the way back to Genesis. All the way back. Through Deuteronomy, all the way to Malachi. It's, the, it's throughout the whole Testament. And that is, God desired to have his human family be able to Love God and love others. This is the law. Okay, so let's keep this in our head. All of Scripture, all the laws are based around these two concepts. Jesus even says it himself later in Matthew. This is God's desire for us. If you start with these two concepts and you actually take a look at a bunch of those laws that are created, those 600 plus laws, if you start there and look at how people will live their life, you take then Israel's context where they were, you see that these 600 plus laws push them towards loving God and loving others. I mean, gosh, they were told to build railings on their rooftop for when they were hosting people up there so they wouldn't fall off. That's a very practical way of loving others, isn't it? <laughs> it might sound silly if we're just reading these 600 laws going, why would there be a law like that? But I tell you, go, go read, go read Leviticus, Numbers, Exodus. <laughs> go take yourself for a spin, all right? And have those two thoughts in your mind, love God, love others. Some of them still we don't understand. We might not fully grasp, you know, the context of, of where Israel was at, what it was like back then. So some of them still might not make too much sense. But I promise you, that was what everything was based on. But those 600 plus laws, they weren't the eternal golden standard. They were forged from the eternal gold standard. And this is what Jesus came to fulfill. He was going to live out these two eternal standards. The way no other human being in history had ever done it, to fully love God and to fully love others. Let's keep reading Matthew five nineteen and 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So today, as we're talking about loving God and loving others, we cannot relax this standard. 
even in the smallest, most insignificant parts of our lives, nooks and crannies of our lives. Life is not just about not sinning. Life is not just about not sinning. It's about living lives that are pleasing to God. Not sinning might stop some of your bad behavior that is sinful, but living a life pleasing to God will not only cause you to do away with those things that are causing you to sin, but it will replace those behaviors with things that are pleasing to God, which bring glory to God. It replaces it with new behavior that is centralized around the object of your affection. And you'll be drawn to asking the question, how can I love you more? You know, this one hit home for me um, because I just think of my shortcomings as a husband. And, you know, if I'm ever in an argument with Vera... You know, sometimes I'll just reach a point where I'll just stop and just say, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? (laughs) And that is not a good heart. Do you know why? It's because it's actually seeking what I want, which is an end to the argument It's an end to the argument. I don't truly want to do the thing that I'm asking. What do you want me to do? It's not loving Vera. How can I love you more is a much different question than what do you want me to do? You know, I've worked for or I've worked with youth for many years. And as we're talking about relaxing, you know, the commandments, I tell you, you work with teen boys for a long time and you get the same question over and over and over. The minute they get into a relationship, and that is how far can I go? And unfortunately, I don't think this question is only It's definitely not asked only by teens. And teens are only growing in maturity. I expect this question from them. But it shows the state of our heart. It shows that we are dangerously playing with the concept of how much saltiness can I lose before I'm not salt anymore? Exactly at what point am I sinning? That is not, that is not a, a heart that says, how can I love you more? It's a heart that says, what do you want me to do? <laughs> you know, the Pharisees were professional rule keepers, impressively, impressively living out lives where they were obeying the statutes of the Torah, all the law that was in the Torah. But many of the Pharisees and scribes had been living only 
to the letter of the law. And they had forgotten the eternal heartbeat that sits behind it. Matthew 15, 7 to 9. He says, you hypocrites. This is Jesus speaking. Well did Isaiah prophesy you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines commandments of men. This is what Jesus sought to fulfill and change in us. And if we have loving God and loving others as the law, you will understand much better the tirade that Jesus is about to go on from verses 21 to 48 when he's addressing anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation and loving our enemies. He's taking the commandments of men that have been foisted up as if they were the gold standard, and he's reminding people of the eternal heartbeat behind them. The true law. It's not a new law Jesus is introducing. It's the true law that has always been there eternally. Love God and love others. It's an amazingly high bar. It doesn't even have enough words for there to be loopholes. And obeying this is exactly what Jesus has in mind in verse 20 when he says that to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The fulfillment that Jesus is talking about, the plan that Jesus speaks of here, it doesn't just end with the life that he leads and the death that he goes to and the resurrection that he has. Fulfillment actually involves us too. God is creating new kinds of people who are able to fully love God and love others. This is what all of Scripture is headed towards. It's our rescue plan by the maker himself. Ezekiel 36, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. First Peter 2.24 He himself, this is Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and now live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Romans 8.3-4 For God has done What the law, weakened by the flesh, weakened by us forgetting that heartbeat, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled by him in us. It might be fulfilled in us 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God makes us able to fully love him by putting his Spirit in us. (laughs) We're a new creation. (laughs) Do you believe that, church? Mm. It can sometimes be hard to believe because we do still mess up. You know, I used to look at those Ten Commandments and they can carry so much condemnation if we look at them because it it just reveals everything that we can do wrong. I lie. I steal. I don't love God as much as I should. And yet, Because of what God has done and because of the spirit that is inside of us, we get to look at those commandments as promises, church. When we read down that list, it's Jesus looking at you saying, hey, if you put your trust in me, I'll put my spirit in you and you will not steal. You will love me. You will have no other gods before you. You will love others fully. You will love me fully. It's a promise. Go do yourself a favor and read through those. And read them as if they are promises written to you, not against you, not to condemn you. Instead of planning your life around not sinning, ask God, how can I love you more? Is this area of my life pleasing to you? Is this area of my life pleasing to you? May that be the cry of our hearts. Not because this will save you, but because we've been saved. Guys, we have a great God. So please, let's, let us be salt and light people. Let us be salt and light people to others. And let us live lives devoted to being pleasing to the King of Heaven who has made a way for us. God is so good. And today we're going to respond to Him by doing communion. So I'm just going to read here, just from 1 Peter. 224, we already read it, and I'm just going to read it again. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That is true, church. And we're going to dwell on that. We're going to sit in that. We're going to mourn over how hard that would have been for Jesus to have gone to his death. And yet we're also going to rejoice that this happened and he was raised from the dead so that we can live with a new spirit, able to fully love God, fully love each other. So please come up. There's no lines, just if If you have made Jesus your king of your life, this is something that we do. If not, please feel free not to partake. We would actually ask you not to. 
But if God is king over your life, please come and grab some of the elements and then find your seats and we'll take it all together once you have these. Could we all stand together? On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. In 1 Corinthians, it It carries on to say, hey, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Hey, we're being light right now. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? We are proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ right now. So please, let us go into the rest of our weeks doing the same. Let us be salt and light people. Please Join us. Don't fly off uh, too fast. We've got coffee at the back. We've got Starbucks coffee. Bougie. So (laughs) please stick around. (laughs) And yeah, we have conversation. Please uh, come talk to us. And, And if you haven't made Jesus the king of your heart, the king of your life, please come talk to myself, Vic, Mike, grab anyone who who does. I mean, we would love to have a conversation uh, with you. So please join us.